Hey there, welcome to Louisiana Farm Life, a podcast where we talk with real farmers about who they are, what they grow, and the struggles that they face on and off the farm. We'll also talk about what they enjoy doing when they're able to get away from the farm. I'm your host, Carl Wiggers, and today is the day that someone else joins me to introduce this week's guest. (laughs) He's my boss, my friend. (laughs) He's interviewed more guests than I, for sure. And he's the co-host of our weekly TV show this week in Louisiana Agriculture, Avery Davidson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carl. Like you had a choice because, as you mentioned, I'm your boss. You are my I was boss. like, I mandated I've got to be on this episode. No. Yeah, he's been, <laughs> he's been on me about it. No. So here at the Farm Bureau, we you know have a few different podcasts. So what is it about this podcast, Avery, that you really like? What I like is just the authenticity that you get from the farmers and ranchers that we speak with. And to get to know them more as people than producers, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You're not, we're not talking about crop numbers. We're not talking about what, what the cattle are selling for today. We're talking about, hey, what do you enjoy doing on the weekend? Yeah, farmers are real people too. Yeah, and that's we want to make sure that comes across. And that's what I love about this podcast. It's a chance to, to humanize people who may just seem so distant. Yeah, speaking of humanizing, is there something that you learned about this week's guest that uh, you didn't really know before getting into this conversation? Well, I don't want to go too deep into it because, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in the good tees <laughs> to keep people listening, but where was, where there, was there something that there, you learned? There, there was, and it was... Um, Something that I didn't know uh, more so about both Amelia and her husband, Russell. Kent. Okay. So, so tell me about Amelia and Russell. That's who we're talking about this that week. That is who we're talking about this week. So on this episode, I visit with Amelia Kent, a rancher in East Feliciana Parish. She and her husband, Russell, own Kent Farms and have expanded beyond just raising calves, but to selling their own grass-fed beef. After meeting Amelia about 11 years ago, we became friends. In our conversations, they often get deep. And I don't mean hip waiter deep. I mean, we're talking like deep in the head. In this conversation, no different. You see, the Kents have been through a lot over the last few years. Not stuff on the farm, but in their lives. A kind of stuff that can either bring people closer together or rip them apart. Join me for the next half hour or so in getting to know Amelia Kent on Louisiana Farm Life. Joining me now is a longtime friend and finally on a podcast with me, Amelia Kent. Amelia, you have uh, been raising cattle for as long as I've known and uh, have Kent Farms. Tell me a little bit about what you do on the farm. Well, thank you, Avery. I'm glad to be here and glad to have this visit. Uh, so Russell and I have Kent Farms together on which we raise beef cattle, primarily a cow-calf herd, but then we're also getting into stalker cattle. It have been for the past three years, two and three years. So we, in addition to the mama cows, the stalker cattle would be that segment of past weaning but before finishing. So I'd like to describe them as kind of like the teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, we also raise replacement heifers and have our own labeled grass-fed beef product. Um, so we do a little bit of everything. We do some hay production and some custom hay services as well. And in terms of what I do on the farm on any given day, it's any and all of the above. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen the videos of you on the on the tractor raking hay. I've seen you working with the cattle. But how did Kent Farms come to be? Because 
you were doing your thing. Russell was doing his thing. How how did aside from getting to the uh, how'd you two meet story? But how did the farms come together? Well, so we did meet in January of two thousand eight, and by June of two thousand nine, we were engaged to be married May of twenty ten. And once we realized that we were planning a life together, um, at that point we had to combine our lives. And he, you're right, he had cattle of his own, he had a job of his own. I was an hour further east with a life of my own and cattle of my own. And so um, after we got engaged and we started planning our lives together, part of that planning was combining um, two, two smaller farms into one. And literally two weeks before the wedding, we were hauling cows of mine from a pasture lease of mine an hour further west to a lease that we had signed together. So that was how the marriage came to be. It wasn't, it wasn't the document <laughs> or the ring. It was, we got this leased land together, honey. <laughs> we did sign a lease together before we got married. Uh, there was already a ring at that point, but it was the engagement ring. Right. So. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. That, is that the lease ring? And now he's got the... No, <laughs> <laughs> no that's wrong. Don't go there. <laughs> I know. I should be ashamed of myself. But, you know, but you do have to make a lot of plans for that. And now that was there any kind of growing pains with the transition at all? Sure. I mean, so I, I talked about having that pasture lease of my own and that was 65 miles further east of everything else that was in our normal path. And we kept that lease um, and put replacement heifers there for, oh, I think, another two or three years after we got married. But as time went on and other opportunities availed, it was time to let that that lease go. So, I mean, the, there have been growing pains, but with the growing pains have actually been progressions and more progression than pain, I'd like to think. Um, another example would be when we met, we each had cattle in herds with our parents. And I, I'm not talking about a lot of cattle. He had 15 cows running in conjunction with his parents' herd at his parents' house, and I had 20 cows running in conjunction with my mom's herd at her house, and um, and we just left them there. They were kind of like lanyap. Um, they weren't hurting anything. That's how the system had always been for years, but when we got into another lease this past fall, and we needed cattle to stock it, we pulled those the cattle off of his parents' farm and the cattle off of my mom's farm along with another cow herd and combined those three different sets of cows into one larger herd. And I mean, so we're no longer, we don't have anything with my mom and we don't have anything with his dad, but that in turn gives them the ability to expand as well, which they're looking forward to. Now we have a little more room now. Let's go ahead and go back a little bit. Uh, we brought up how y'all brought the herds together, but how did you two meet? Was it, you know, across a, a, a crowded auction barn? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we were, so it was January of 2008, and we were at a cattleman's convention uh, right here in Baton Rouge and standing amongst a group of people and we each knew everybody in the group except for each other. And so, I mean, a lot of common connections, a lot of um, overlaps in terms of mutual friends, but we our paths had never crossed prior to that point. So we were introduced in in this setting, in this, in this large group, and it just kind of took off from there. 
um, casual conversation led to casual dating and more serious dating turned into getting engaged and then married. So y'all have been married since 2010, so nine years now, mm-hmm. um, celebrating nine years. What, what is, I know he's works, he works an off farm job as well. So what, what is daily life like at the Kent house? Well, it depends on if it's winter or summer, I guess is a, is a <laughs> precedent. Um, so Russell does work off of the farm in ag lending. And um, since 2012, I have been full-time on the farm, which in turn has allowed us um, opportunities for, ex- which in turn has allowed us to become better managers. And in turn, that's led to further opportunities for expansion. Um, a day in life would, I mean, it it changes daily, but get up and going, get gone. Um, I mean, we, we don't wake up super duper early if we don't have to. We have those mornings where we're waking up at four and five in the morning and we're out the door by daylight. But on a standard work week, um, out the door between seven and eight and he's going to the office and I'm going to tackle whatever my list is for the day, um, especially in the summer, it's hard to mess with the cattle. Like if I'm having to move cattle, once it gets too hot, they're not going to move. So focusing on moving cattle, either in the mornings or in the evenings, and then whatever the task of the day is in between, whether that's the hay field. um, I've been spraying fence rows lately. Next week looks like a lot of clipping pastures. Um, And then by the afternoon and evening, it's also preparing for whatever the next day is, if any equipment needs to be moved, um, if we need to hook equipment up, because I do a lot of, um, I can do a lot of the operating on my own. Uh, let's just get prepared and hooked up and serviced the evening before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, a little a little of everything. How about that? When you were in college, did you think that this would be your life at all, going back to Wellesley? Because I didn't establish. I guess we need to establish that that's where you went to college. I did. Um, How'd you end up there? <laughs> so... Um, Half of my childhood was in Colorado, so elementary school. And then when my parents divorced, my mom, my dad stayed in Colorado and my mom moved home to Louisiana. Um, So the other half of my childhood, junior high school and high school, was Louisiana. Um, And I had really good grades and pretty decent scores. So when it was time to think about college, um, at that time I was purely in an ag track. I was involved in 4-H and involved in FFA. I showed cattle. I was heavily into livestock judging. And at the time, my dad was married to a British woman who'd gone to Oxford. And my dad has two law degrees. So he um, he was appreciating the ag school type focus, but also encouraging me to think outside of the box or outside of my comfort zone, and at least encourage me to look at other types of schools. Um, and he, he said, you know, if, if you put together a list like of schools you want to tour, we'll go on a tour. And so we did. We um, we looked at, I think, 14 schools on the East Coast in a matter of two weeks. And I really loved one, but it was in the heart of New York City. And then I really loved another, but it was 80 miles from New York City. And I've always been 80 miles from the country. Like the heart of New York City, I didn't think I could dive right into. I'm a farm girl at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 80 miles away, I've always been 80 miles away. Boston was our last stop, and um, 
I mean, I was kind of striking out, <laughs> really, yeah. uh, in terms of finding schools that piqued my interest. But Wellesley did. Um, Wellesley College is located in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. So think about 16 or 17 miles out of downtown Boston, a closed campus, Gothic architecture, smaller student body. So everything was lighting up. Um, I wasn't too keen on the fact that it's a women's school, but um, but everything else was ringing my bell, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and to boot, there was a small little farm dating back to the 1770s on the outskirts, right on the edge of the um, right on the edge of the campus. And that small little farm had the same same breed cows that I grew up showing. So I kind of took that as my omen and ran with it. And if the only thing that didn't at- didn't add up was being in all women's school. I figured I could make that concession because, you know, I've been one of the guys for a long time. So let, maybe it's time to learn how to be one of the girls. So what were you going for? How long did you go? What was, what was that whole experience like? Uh, so I was in and out in four years. I did not start out with a major. I was thinking about the idea of like mechanical engineering or genetics because those of course, relate directly back to my exposure to livestock as a kid growing up. Once I figured out how many prerequisite sciences I needed just to get into those majors, which essentially could have been majors on their own, I quickly got away from the science path and landed in a double major in economics and religion. Economics and religion. I I can... I can sort of see how both would apply to uh, agriculture because you've got to make sure the books are right and you're always praying to God that the prices stay good to make sure the books are right. Well, and my dad is really famous for quoting an Old Testament line um, of always making sure your scales are balanced. So I guess that one goes to both of them. Do you use those, both of those majors on a daily basis? I'd say absolutely yes. Um the economics degree was is is more from a theory standpoint than application, but it so and a like with a business degree you get a whole lot more business type training. Whereas with the economics theory, it's more the overarching concepts. Um, so I don't I've had to learn a lot of the accounting from the ground up, trial by error, and from the religion side of it. Um, the religion degree has really helped me find a grounding within myself, but relative to the agrarian, I hate to say lifestyle because it's more than that, um, but living off of the land, I mean, that that goes back to the beginning of time. And, and it's a lot of the root of what I pick up in terms of my own spirituality. I could see where that would also lend itself to what you've done with advocacy in the last few years, especially, I mean, you're a graduate of the PAL program, Uh, you've been very involved in Farm Bureau. Um, I could see where the religion degree would sort of lend itself to, because when you look at the folks who are, are quoted in the Bible and the like, they were advocates on some level. I mean, for morality or for a way of life. Do you find that the two kind of 
go together? Or am I just completely crazy? Because it's okay if I'm completely crazy. Well, you might be. Um, but <laughs> no, I. It's really interesting. I have not thought about advocacy in any sort of correlation to my religion degree at all. But I can. I think it's an interesting point you raise, and I'm. The wheels are turning as I'm sitting here. Um, Maybe it's subconsciously. I don't know. I mean, and and perhaps I'm being a little too Dr. Freud. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> no, um, but no, I, I, I can kind of see where where the two might play off of one another, but then it also depends on what what you got out of the religion degree. I mean, what did that do for you personally? So I guess I need to back up with the religion degree. It The religion degree allowed me to really identify and hone in on what I what I believe. Um, and the, the backstory is my mom is Episcopalian. She was raised Southern Baptist and my dad is Jewish. So I grew up confused. Um, I grew up in multiple religious settings and hearing the same religious stories told from different angles. And I mean, I'm, I grew up baptized in the Episcopal Church and I still grew up confused. So the religion degree in the moment really helped me figure out the history of the religion, which is my degree. My, my degree is a concentration in, his, in religion, but more from a historical context and not theologian. Gotcha. Um, so, I, yes, figure out what really happened throughout the course of religious history and how it was, um, how it was recorded in history, both in oral tradition and then in the written word, um, and then watch how it's evolved through um, – social transgressions. <laughs> um, so so fast forward, um, it, when I think about my own spirituality and, and leading by example and trying to be a good person in the eyes of God, if I extend that out into the work I do as a farmer and um, wanting to Bear with me. I'm chewing. I I know what I'm wanting to say. I just don't have the words. Um, wanting to have a good work and life ethic that I'm proud of, but I'm also doing as I say. Um, like I'm. I'm. You're living what you what you preach at the same time. To some I degree, I think that's. I think that's what I'm. The angle I'm going with. Um, it's. So fast forward to something that I think, or not fast forward, but tie into something I think about relative to advocacy. Um, if you don't, our, our famous lobbyist, Joe Mape, says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm-hmm. And I've taken that one as far as going, uh, as far as saying, you know, if you don't speak up for yourself, someone else is going to, to tell your story with their own agenda attached. So relative to advocacy and thinking about those two ideas and tying it back to religion and tying it back to my life and career as a farmer, I absolutely think they all go hand in hand. It's taken me a long time to get there <laughs> to answer your question, but I, I see them all interrelated. That's that's the, the the crazy thing about life on some levels is 
we don't know how all the things we've done in the past are going to tie together to what we are today. And I don't even want to say what we're doing, but it's what we are. It's the fabric of our own being because, you know, I didn't, my background, television news, I've got some music in there, a lot of insanity, but I've still worked <laughs> them all together into, into this. And I think that, uh, we, seeing all that you, you've, grown from it's really all come together with the agriculture with the advocacy and then um obviously part of the the advocacy is is being upfront for our fellow farmers and ranchers but the one issue that's really come up lately has been mental health and you've been very outspoken about that in some of the columns that you and i've worked together on tell me a little bit about that you know it Mental health is a big one, and especially in the agricultural community where there is so much pride and so much toughness, um, and even like an exterior shell, it, people have to be tough. I mean, you have to be tough to survive in our our industry. Um, so when you think about mental health, it's that one's the one of the first ones to get swept under the rug and quickly ignored. Um, personally, Russell and I went through a pretty big loss in 2018, which has kind of made me, we're still dealing with our loss. Um, we had a late term miscarriage in May of 2018 and we're still working through that. Um, but it's made me acutely more sensitive to others going through challenges of their own. Um, I remember when you were going through that, that you you mentioned that other folks who you had never thought would have gone through the same thing approached you about it. Absolutely. It, um, one of the sayings that came that was presented to me is, it's not a club you want to be part of, but once you're in the club, it's astonishing how many people are in that club, whether it's miscarriage. I mean, that was the topic of the day, but it extends out to death. It extends out to suicide. It extends out to so many different topics of, um, yes, loss is part of it, but it's not a very far step to get into mental health in general. Um, and another, another parallel concern is the state of the farm economy. It's no secret that the farm economy has sucked for the last couple of years and there is no end in sight. Um, are we on the same trajectory as the crisis of the 80s? Quite possibly. I don't know. I was, a, I was a little kid in the 80s, so I don't remember the exact details, but I know that it's still talked about. And I'm, I am concerned that we're on that same sort of path. Um, so thinking in that nature, thinking in that vein, relative to watching out for our neighbors and watching out for our community, we're in a tough spot. Is it as bad as the 80s? I don't know. Is it going to be as bad as the 80s? I don't know. Um, and but, even then, do we know that we're in such a bad spot until after it's passed? Because a, a lot of folks, y you just think that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing to survive when you're in the middle of it. It's not until you're, you're away that you look back and you're like, how did I do that? How did we do that? How did we get through that? Right, right. And, you know, I've had numerous conversations with fellow farmers and fellow Farm Bureau members 
concerned on the same topic and how do you broach it? Well, I can promise you if you wanted to walk, walk up to your neighbor, say, hey, I'm worried about you, nine times out of ten, it wouldn't be met with a very positive response. Um, I don't know what it looks like in terms of how to be that safe, welcoming, open ear from one neighbor to another because I feel like there's so much social pretense involved that, or, or social barriers that that conversation is doomed before it even starts. Mm-hmm. One of the conversations I've had with um, actually Joey Register from DeSoto Parish, um, Joey suggested focusing on the women of agriculture, um, whether they're spouses or whether they're working at co-ops or um, seed companies, whatever, that maybe trying some sort of outreach to women's type groups would be a really good first step because they're like the spouse might be the, the one, the one person who can see the farmer hurting when nobody else can. So when you and Russell were going through your rough spots following the loss, what did seeking help do for you? What did it do for you both? I don't know that seeking help was or, really seek, or getting it. Getting, I should getting help look for both of us looked very different. Um, I actually did meet with a therapist on a number of occasions just to kind of talk through and work through my grief. And again, I think there's a whole lot of stigma there that shouldn't be. Um, Agreed. But some of the unsolicited conversations in a hallway at Farm Bureau Convention or at a meeting or um, you name it, just someone walking up to me and say, you know, I've been there too, um, and, and sharing their experiences those were some of the most impactful, moving, but um, positive moments for me. Just knowing, like, I'm not alone. More people than not have been through something like this. Um, and it will get better, and it won't ever go away. But with time, that wound heals. And look at... It, seeing others who have fast-forwarded five or 10 or 15 years. Um, that was really beneficial for me. And I, I think Russell, too. Um, his path of healing is very parallel, but in some ways very different than mine. Um, we're, we're sharing the loss together, but we're also experiencing it individually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't speak entirely for him, right. but... But those conversations out of the blue in the hallway would bring me to my knees, but at the same time lift me up more than I could tell you. I know from experience after experiencing certain losses that you can be somewhere that seems completely unrelated and it'll something will trigger. Something will bring everything back. Um, for me, a lot of times it's... Uh, I lost a really good friend in when I was in high school, a really close friend, and to a motorcycle crash. To this day, I, I don't ride. I don't condemn anyone who rides or say that they shouldn't. It's just not something I do. But there'll be moments when 
it's like I'm brought back to the hotel room where she was, uh, not the hotel room, the hospital room where she was hooked up to every machine in the hospital, you know, and it's, it, it really, it, it's tough to talk about, especially I watched my father die from lung cancer, though, all those sorts of losses, but we, we've got to talk about them. And I, I think that that getting over that, I, I don't want to seem weak by talking about things I think is, is, is a big, is an important thing. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I, one of the things I first noticed in myself through the course of our loss is whereas I've done a really good job of keeping a shell up around me and, and always being very professional and very focused on the task at hand, this experience, and I'm, it's not a limited one day or one week experience. At this point, we're going on 15 and 20 months, but this experience has caused me to be more human in ways that maybe I wasn't before or I was, but not enough. Um, I, I feel like because of um, everything we've, we've gone through, I, I'd like to think, I, I hope I'm a lot more empathetic than a previous version of myself. Um, but yeah, thinking about farmers and the, the farmer community or, or the genre specifically, it's, it's a sign of weakness if you're talking about your feelings. I can't, I, that's how I grew up. I mean, that's, that's the group of cowboys I grew up with in Colorado. Um, I think about my grandpa and it's the same way. I, um, I think more often than not, our agriculture, agricultural community is guilty of that exact mindset, that if you're talking about your feelings, you're weak. But it's not limited to agriculture either. I'm, no. I'm reading a book right now um, by Brene Brown, and I'll be damned if I can remember the name of the book. That's okay. Um, I, I watched her Netflix special, and uh, I actually have a couple of, of her books that um, Monica Velasquez Mm-hmm. Our graphic designer suggested I read. I think this one is Rising Above or Rising Beyond. Some it, it's one in the trilogy, but or and I have no idea if it's a trilogy or not. But one in the sequence, and it's talking about vulnerability, and especially in the baby boomer baby boomer generation, you were as a kid they were taught to not show their feelings because showing their fe- feelings is a sign of weakness. So. I, yeah, we're all guilty of it within agriculture, but what I'm finding is it's not limited to agriculture. It's our society as a whole, and you can actually look at um, social patterns from one generation to another to another. Um, so, for instance, looking at like the Great Depression generation and, and some of the effects the depression wrought upon that generation and how they transpire in family dynamics subsequently. Mm-hmm. It's super interesting. I know that for for guys especially, it's frowned upon to, at least whenever I was younger, to show emotion, feeling, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it's it it it's tough when the other guys make fun of you for it. It's like, why are you crying? Well, because I'm sad. Right. And. You, you shouldn't be crying. Yeah, yeah, I probably should because it'll probably help me out a lot, lot more later. The bad thing is now I'm 45 and I, I don't cry as much as I probably should. 
Well, and I, see, I'd, I'd say that even from the word go, I've been that way. Um, I think back to when my grandfather died in 1995, and I was 97, and I was incredibly close to him. But I went through the whole week of him on his deathbed and, and the passing and the funeral, and I, I was stoic. But it took somewhere between two and three weeks down the road. Mind you, I'm like 14. Um, mm-hmm. But it took several weeks for me to get to that cry now when when it happened it was a big cry um but even then i mean that it took several weeks and a major loss of Mm me for me to get to that point and i'm i'm still that way um i think you said it right the first time major loss of you because there's a piece of us in in each of the major people in our lives mm -hmm. i really think that and you know losing your grandfather that young uh you missed out on some experience with him because of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Man, we're, we're really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, we tend to do that. I know. Even whenever we're just grabbing drinks somewhere, <laughs> we always go into the deeps, the deep end of the pool. Um, have you, do you feel stronger now after going through all of that? And after, and I, I guess stronger, Stronger can mean different things to different people. So let's let's say, do you are you more comfortable with how you're able to show your feelings, show your emotion, and even share the loss than you were before? I'm getting there. Um, it's it's been a wave of emotions and. Exactly right here, right now, today, I'd say, yeah, I I feel better about it. And frankly, I talk ab- about our loss more frequently than I think someone else thinks I should. But that gets back to miscarriage not being talked about enough. Um, <laughs> there's so many things we don't talk about enough. Miscarriage, mental health, uh, depression. But I can go right, on right. and on. So, no, I... I I'm not sweeping our miscarriage under the rug. I, I, and I'm not trying to broadcast it either, but when it's appropriate, I weave it into a conversation because I feel like people need to hear more about it. I surely needed to hear more about it going into our loss. Man, I can't, I'm, I can't think of anyone that this has happened to, but within a week of people reaching out in our immediate circle alone, Five close friends had been through a similar second or third trimester loss, um, which was really humbling for me. But then watching how they've picked up and I, I hate the term moved on, but um, it's, it's not moving on. It's carrying with you, I think. Right. Right. So seeing how they're continuing forward um, and what they look like a year later or five years later or 30 years later was really beneficial to me in the moment. Um, but yeah, so since May of 2018, I've been in, in kind of a, a wave of type, a wave of different types of emotions, some really high and some super duper low. And let me get back up on, on a peak and then, or a crest and come back down. Um, and a lot of it also was internally driven with a lot of self doubt and self loathing, self loathing. Like I'm the problem here. Um, but that stuff that 
I've been working through and right now I feel very healthy about. Um, do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. And I, I probably won't ever. But through a lot of internal work and a lot of, of just digestion and, and time helps too, um, but really just kind of reconciling with myself the facts and the feelings and the emotions separate from the feelings. Um, I'm, I feel like relative to our experience, I'm in a very good place to not only talk about it and weave it into conversation, but hopefully serve as a resource to those in any way I can. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that with us today, Amelia. I know that uh, probably the last thing you expected me to do is to talk to you about all of this, and I didn't even expect to go in some of the places that that we went. But uh, I think hearing people talk about it helps. I think that it, it breaks down a stigma, it breaks down a wall, and maybe, just maybe, someone who who hears your story will feel like they can actually share the same thing. Uh, I, if that's why we're talking about this today, then I sincerely hope so. Um, hearing those who've been through it before have been such a valuable, has been such a valuable resource for me. If, if I can return that favor and pass it onwards, I'm glad to do so. Um, I was having a conversation the other day with uh, Tim Payne, our field services director. He, three years ago, almost three years ago, lost his daughter and just a couple of weeks ago lost his wife, Stephanie. And we were talking and just like you and I are, sharing experiences and like. And he was like, you know, you don't realize it, but everybody's been through something. Every single person you meet has mm -hmm. been through something. And when you keep that in mind, that what you see every day is just one layer of that person, that there's something always deeper, I think that we start to respect each other more as, as human beings. But I'm getting all, I'm getting super deep and meta here. Sorry. No, I, that, <laughs> I'd say that's absolutely been my experience. And it's funny you bring up Tim. And how tragic, most recently, the past month has been, um, three, three, four weeks. But it's actually Tim who told me, it's not a club you want to be part of, but once you're in it, it's amazing how big it is um, and welcoming. And, and so Tim, I mean, that goes back to losing Savannah three years ago, and he told that to me shortly after our loss. But um, I, I think maybe a month after our loss. But... It that's been one of the things I've come back to repeatedly in terms of finding my strength in the past 15 months. Well, I thank you for joining us on the Louisiana Farm Life podcast. Amelia Kent, Kent Farms. If you uh, don't follow anything she does uh, on Facebook, you really should because she really gives you a good insight to the farm, even though we didn't talk a whole lot about <laughs> that. <laughs> no, we didn't. But, but the upside is you speak for yourself on there, and that's the important part. Yeah. It, you do a lot of Facebook Lives there. 
on the Kent Farms page. So go out, check that out. We'll, we'll put a link here with this podcast. Uh, but thank you so much, Amelia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, what you just heard is pretty much the kind of conversation Amelia and I have over a beer or two or three at least once a year. With her education, background, and experiences, it not only makes her an amazing advocate for agriculture and farm mental health, but an interesting woman I admire, and I think you should too. I for sure do. Thanks again, Amelia, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your story, and to you, Avery, for conducting the interview. Of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now, and subscribe so you can stay up to date when we release a new podcast. That feedback helps others find us. Another way you can help us out is by completing a short survey at twilighttv.org slash farmlife. This podcast was produced by me, Carl Wiggers, with Avery Davidson, with graphic design by Monica Velasquez for the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture. 